0: The following program may offend those who say fudge instead of another F word. It may also offend those who say fudge when asked to rank their top three desserts. It's Thursday, June 18th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Donald Trump used a Nazi symbol in online advertising, told us he should be given credit for popularizing the holiday of Juneteenth and was rebuked by the Supreme Court for his administration's DACA policy. And in all cases, he had the same excuse. I was ignorant. And you know what? I believe him. Now Donald Trump in his life and his administration has an interesting relationship with ignorance. It has saved us from him and him from himself so many, many times. Ignorance over if anyone takes his calls to interfere with the election seriously. Ignorance if he knew that Don McGahn and other staffers over the years would actually follow his orders. Ignorance over tax law. Ignorance over his company's redlining policies. Ignorance over what actually was the truth about the Central Park Five. Ignorance, ignorance, ignorance. About DACA, his administration ignorantly went about implementing the policy and were smacked down. Well, how is he supposed to know? Of the red triangle that the Nazis used to symbolize political prisoners, Trump said it was an Antifa symbol. Antifa experts said, nah, it wasn't really. The Trump campaign said, how are we supposed to know? We're too incompetent to be properly informed. You can't blame us. As far as Juneteenth, this was from the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Trump said he polled many people around him, none of whom had heard of Juneteenth. Mr. Trump paused the interview to ask an aide if she had heard of Juneteenth, and she pointed out that the White House had issued a statement last year commemorating the day. Mr. Trump's White House has put out statements on Juneteenth during each of his first three years. Oh, really? We put out a statement? The Trump White House put out a statement, Mr. Trump said? Oh, okay, good, good. Hadn't heard of it, so how could you blame him? Didn't know his administration had acknowledged it every year, so how can you blame him? Really, the bottom line is, how could you blame him? He's just the guy who didn't know. Make America great again? When? He doesn't know. How? He doesn't know. When was it ever great before? That is an idea of pretty much 50s pre-civil rights. I alone can solve it. How? Doesn't know, so you can't hold him to it. And let's take Obamagate.
1: Uh, Obamagate. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected. And it's a disgrace that it happened. And if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now, all of this information that's being released. And from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, Some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next over the coming weeks, But I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it, but unfortunately, you choose not to do so. Yeah, John, please. Crime.
2: What is the crime exactly that uh, you're accusing him of? You
1: know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody.
0: All you have to do is read the newspapers, except yours. Uh, John, please. I don't know what he's talking about. The reporter didn't know what he's talking about, and he didn't know what he's talking about. Ignorance will set him free. It's worked before. It will work again. So let us all commemorate Juneteenth, everyone. what, What month is that again? Yeah, who knows? On the show today, I spiel about the charges against Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe. But first, Josh Levine, not just a colleague, not just a friend, not just a very tall fan of the New Orleans Pelicans, but a podcaster. Josh hosts the new season of Slow Burn, which is about David Duke. He of the KKK, and for one term, the Louisiana State Legislature. Josh Levine, up next. The new season of Slow Burn is upon us. The slate historical series that looks at the past and subtly relates it to the present is this season about David Duke, the Klansman, who gained elected office in Louisiana. Josh Levine is hosting the series this season. He is the national editor here at Slate, host of the sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, author of The Queen, and now proper podcast, narrative podcast host, although he did a little bit of that with The Queen for Slate also. Josh, thanks
1: for agreeing to come on The Gist. It was a tough decision, but I'm glad I made the right one. Yeah. Thank you, Mike.
0: When David Duke, when he was running for the Senate, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you were what, a young boy living in Louisiana? What were your impressions of him then as you reflect back?
1: Yeah, I was born in 1980. Duke was really a major presence in Louisiana between 89 and 91. The thing that mostly he evokes is this kind of feeling of dread and confusion that I had, and it was really the first real political consciousness that I had was following these races that Duke was in as something that didn't seem like particularly abstract or like a game, but it's something that could have serious consequences for me and my family and the state and a lot of people in Louisiana. I mean, the things that I remember specifically are the iconography. He had these blue signs, blue background with his name and white type. And still to this day, I have never seen political signs that were this large, just like physically large. The people that had the Duke signs and the people that loved Duke were really into David Duke. There weren't people that were just like, "Eh, I think that guy's kind of okay. Like the people that really voted for Duke and were willing to show it, they wanted a really big sign. And so these signs would be like on the roofs of people's houses and on restaurants and stuff. And so that is something that I really remember. And then I also remember seeing him as I talk about in the podcast, in the stands at an LSU football game, which we would go to these games as a family and just see him work the crowd and people there being really enthralled with David Duke. And I found that uh, disturbing, I would say. Did Did they
0: try to meet him or did they throw things at him or did they enthusiastically pump his hand and then turn back to rooting for the majority Black Tigers on the field?
1: Yeah, I remember him being received really enthusiastically by the crowd at Tiger Stadium. And, you know, maybe before then, as a kid, not really thinking about how race inflects everything to do with college sports in the South. And, you know, the fact that people watching these athletes maybe would have a different attitude about them if they encountered them off the football field.
0: Yeah. And as you describe in the podcast, the LSU Stadium was your something like your happy place or safe place. No no doubt, Death Valley being someone's safe place. But that (laughs) listeners should know that for you, it represented a lot of good things. And at least as you portrayed in the podcast, that image had a searing effect on your perception of that once beloved place.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely, you know, feeling a sense of really strong identification with this team and then feeling really alienated as you're in a crowd of people who you would think are your people, like people who also feel that strong affiliation. It's very kind of alienating and strange. You know, I think a lot of people in the state of Louisiana felt that way, even when they were not in Tiger Stadium during this period. One of the statistics that is really, really remarkable and powerful is that when he ran for the U.S. Senate in 1990, he won nearly 60 percent of the white vote. The majority of white people in the state, like the guy, wanted him to be senator, wanted him later to be governor. That's just the reality of of this period. So there's another
0: way to look at the Duke phenomenon, which is to note that there are like 7,500 state senators and state representatives and among them in the last 30 years. So that's just at one time. So there must be tens of thousands. Or if you do the math, maybe it's approaching, you know, 100,000 people who served in a state legislature. Um, And it shouldn't be shocking in a country where, as you cite, you know, 10 percent of the people around that time had positive associations with the Klan. Maybe it shouldn't be so shocking that one seat went to one, he claimed, former Klansman, and that guy only got one term. You know, maybe he it really is this outlier that shouldn't be ignored because he had these hateful attitudes. But also, we shouldn't read too much into his actual power or what he represents. If anything, he represents You know, that a tiny, tiny, tiny speck of anyone actually elected to a powerful position is of his ilk.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can draw analogies between Duke and, I think, fringe characters across time and different places geographically. I mean, Lyndon LaRouche had some level of success Mm -hmm. in the 1980s, and I've seen an analogy being made there. But I think it's important to understand the particulars— of the Duke story, that this was somebody who was the best known, open, avowed white supremacist in the country, who had been a leader in the Ku Klux Klan, who was known to you know, have sympathies and affection for Adolf Hitler, and was also someone who was known for being incredibly ambitious, having run for president. And so he was not somebody who was one of 7,500 state legislators. This was a famous person, who was known to be looking at this race as a stepping stone. And so I think his election meant something. It was it was symbolic. Um, it meant something, obviously, to Duke. But I think he was able to use that platform to go somewhere else, to make himself bigger, more popular, make himself into somebody who was covered in a very substantial way by the press, which helped get his message out, but also, you know, gave him this sort of legitimacy that allowed him to present himself as a mainstream politician, a candidate, a serious candidate, and one who got an enormous number of votes in these two big elections that followed that state rep race. So, yeah, let's talk about the
0: attention that he got. There is, at least in the episodes that I listened to, a through line, um, an unstated really of the debate that's playing out now between platforming and deplatforming. Do you allow even reprehensible views to be aired, perhaps in the pursuit of knocking those views down or debating with them? Or is it better just to never give those views an airing? And two instances that you talk about is he debated Jesse Jackson, who was much more famous and didn't need the platform, but was of the opinion that when you have these views, it's good to engage them in debate and show that they're wrong. And you also go back to his college days when there was a sort of a speaker's corner Hyde Park institution at LSU, where he would almost always never draw a crowd or convince anyone and be mocked, but he did get a chance to talk. So where do you come down on that question of platforming versus not?
1: There's a third example that's also really important that we get into in the second episode, which is Duke appearing on The Tomorrow Show, which was hosted by Tom Snyder, which is the vehicle that he really used to make himself nationally prominent and Snyder and the people that booked that show were looking for people who were just kind of beyond the the range of acceptable opinion. They wanted to be edgy and mm-hmm. book people that they thought were interesting and that would agitate people. And so it's also important to note just like the kind of valence of these conversations in the late 60s and early 70s, just the idea, the notion you would censor someone for what they might say. And it was just totally fringe opinion at that point. It was considered worse, I think, by most people to censor hateful speech than to present it. You know, When Duke went to the University of North Carolina in 1975, I wasn't able to get this into the podcast, but I found it fascinating. A bunch of Black students got up and protested during his speech and prevented him from talking. And just the amount of agita that that caused at the school with people saying that the protesters were worse than Duke, with saying that this was the day democracy died at the University of, of North Carolina. So I say all of that to just say like the normative approach was you let people like David Duke talk and that we mm-hmm. need to air these views and hear these views. And that's an American value. Um, like I think people need to understand that that is kind of the baseline. And so what I would argue is that um, you know Jesse Jackson was better prepared than Tom Snyder was to talk to David Duke. You know I say in the podcast, and it's true. He never prepared questions. He wanted it to have a kind of conversational vibe of just like we're just two guys talking. And I think people underestimated Duke, and he definitely did. That Duke had been talking about this stuff his entire life, and he was prepared to pivot and, you know, just be nimble and agile and could answer anything. And so people who weren't steeped in this stuff and weren't as knowledgeable as him were just going to get run over. And so I think if you're going to give somebody a platform, you need to be very prepared, very conscious of what you're doing and why. And you need to, you know, understand what someone like Duke is going to use that platform for and why they're doing it. So here's another thing about David Duke that I want to ask you, which is that you often hear
0: that the way racism actually spreads, in our society at least, is that you have these kind of figureheads who are so blatantly over-the-top, explicitly racist. And what that allows is not even necessarily for those people to convince anyone, but from a propaganda standpoint, to act as a benchmark. And then because they're out there being the quote unquote real racist, you can have a whole raft of racist policy, follow them and say, well, I don't believe what David Duke believes. I'm not explicitly racist. You know, they're the real racist. This is just more a moderate version of whatever policy you're favoring that probably has racist overtones, like say testing welfare recipients for drug use. What do you think David Duke would say about that?
1: What I would say is that that's not how Duke functioned politically in these three campaigns, the state rep, the U.S. Senate, and the gubernatorial campaign. He presented it as one that was not about being anti-black. It was uh, pro-white. It was about fairness, about, you know, he said that affirmative action was racist and everybody should be treated equally, no matter what race they were, and... He gave cover to more overt, virulent racism by cloaking it in this kind of language of equality and fairness. And I think a lot of people in the state of Louisiana at that time, particularly those who were struggling because of the oil bust, were definitely inclined to think that they were being treated unfairly. And it was about time that somebody spoke up. For them. But I think the other thing that he did, which I think a lot of politicians do, is say, I'm the only one who's telling you the truth. Everybody else believes this, and I'm the only one who'll say it out loud. Um, He's arguing that he was just more authentic than any other politician. I think in that way, he tried to create the sort of tribal. Feeling and his supporters that you weren't just supporting a politician, but you were supporting a cause that we're like this family that we all know this and we all believe this, and finally, um, you don't have to be embarrassed about your beliefs. He like made people feel okay about being racist.
0: One thing I was always curious about: Louisiana is, I think, the tenth or eleventh most Catholic state, the most Catholic state in the South. And most of their Catholics are white. So he did, Duke did so well with white Louisianans, but the Klan has, its history is anti Jewish, anti black,
1: and anti Catholic. Did you do any reporting to figure out what Catholics thought of Duke or what Duke thought of Catholics? So the 1920s Klan, though like really big Klan that was more of a political party than a kind of terrorist insurgent movement, was extremely anti Catholic. But part of Duke's uh, mission in the 70s was to rebrand the Klan. He wanted the kind of danger of it. He wanted to use it to get notoriety. It worked with him being interviewed on these national talk shows. He had a big white tent. He was like, women, women are welcome in the Klan. Catholics, you can come on in too. And he would get more media coverage for that. Like the New York Times did a feature on the women of David Duke's Ku Klux Klan, yeah, and in these races and in, in the late '80s and early '90s, he would talk a lot about, "I love Catholics. Uh, my, you know, this people working for my, my my campaign are Catholic," and I didn't get the sense that there was a big kind of segment of Catholic voters in Louisiana who were like really anti-Duke because of the Klan's historically anti-Catholic views. I think. In Christian religious communities, there were a lot of people that opposed him. Mm -hmm. The head of the main anti-Duke group was a minister, but I didn't see or, um, you know, in my reporting, haven't found that there was this big breakdown between Catholics and non-Catholics. So I'm
0: not going to ask you, you know, without David Duke, do we get Donald Trump? His election was, you know, so close and overdetermined. And you can't just take out one element and say this was that. There's no way to actually prove it. But there's a way to, you know, demonstrate some currents that do flow. And I was wondering if you could put your fingers on them.
1: One thing that is a uh, big takeaway from the end of the first episode is the anger in the crowd at Duke's victory rally. Jason Barry, who is a journalist who was at the rally, says the one thing that just really, really struck me was how angry people were, even though the guy had won. And it was just such a anti-establishment, anti-authority message that people thought they were sending in this, the messenger that they chose. The analogy that I draw is like, people who've think that voting is a way to send a message, that they think that, you know, whether they feel disenfranchised by the world and they want to send a a signal about that disenfranchisement, it's just a real strong connection there about hating the people who are running things, blaming whether it's Black people or immigrants for your lot in life or what's going on in the world— and wanting to have those feelings validated. And maybe the only way that you think that you can express those feelings in a socially sanctioned way is in the voting booth.
0: Josh Levine is the host of season four of Slow Burn. It's all about David Duke. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Rayshard Brooks didn't deserve to die. Police officer Garrett Rolfe may very well deserve to be convicted of murder. And those are two things I believe, and I want you to know up front, as I discuss the press conference and the argument set forth by Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard. Frankly, a few of the things that Howard said confused me, and a few others boggled my mind. Howard, a 20-year, 20 20-plus-year 20 DA, came in second in a primary to retain his seat that was held a little over a week ago. So he is trailing his female challenger, also an African-American who he is branding as being overly deferential to the police. Howard also faces two lawsuits filed by female former subordinates who accuse him of sexual harassment. It is not far-fetched to say that Paul Howard is fighting from behind to hold on to office and his main rhetorical weapon is to present himself to the voting public as tougher on the police than his rival is. None of that really says anything about the law. There is the case to be made that in shooting a fleeing suspect with or without a weapon, that is or isn't considered lethal, just that fact alone, suspect fleeing, you shooting, that might not constitute a reasonable act of self-defense. So before we hear from Prosecutor Howard, let us play a bit of a Radiolab episode which dealt with the case Howard himself references. It is a Supreme Court case that governs how police are to be evaluated after they've shot someone. The case is called Graham. And this is Radio Lab producer Matt Kilty, who reads the Supreme Court decision to host Jad Abumrad.
2: So you have to put yourself in the shoes of an officer in the moment and look at the world through their eyes. And and that's how you have to understand these things. And where did that where did where did that idea come from? So that comes from graham like that comes from uh the chief justice uh william rehnquist's uh, opinion which i have right here the reasonableness of a particular use of force must be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than with the 2020 vision of hindsight and its calculus must embody an allowance for the fact and this is extremely important that police officers are often forced to make split second decisions about the am- amount of force necessary in a particular situation. And so as you can see, this, this idea of reasonableness is circumscribed very tightly by time. It's not asking like what a reasonable officer would do here in, in general during a moment where um, where they have to use force. Instead, what it's asking is what would a reasonable officer do in this split second? In this little tiniest sliver of time where where the force actually occurred. And in fact, that moment, legally has come to be known um, as a superseding event. Meaning what? What does that mean? Um meaning uh, this is I find this kind of crazy. Uh, meaning that, that that moment, that superseding event, it, it essentially it breaks the chain of causation. so if if you think of time as just this like continuous flow, this is like no. You break that, you stop that, and you take this one little moment and you pluck it out and you're like, this moment, this is the one moment that you look at. That's all they can think about, the jurors.
0: Now, there's another Supreme Court case regarding fleeing suspects and there is applicable Georgia law, which could very well directly apply to Officer Rolfe's decision making. But we should take seriously what Radiolab was talking about, that you have to consider in the moment, the exact moment... Right when Garrett Rolfe had a taser fired at him, what was in his mind? The standard, you can argue that it's over deferential to law enforcement, but the standard is that the officer, if he reasonably feared incapacitation, was right or allowed to act with force. And the officer would know that a taser, while not a lethal weapon, could incapacitate for five seconds. And an armed incapacitated officer, officers are armed, could be shot after his gun was taken away from him. And therefore, an officer would be reasonable to fear for his life and respond with even deadly force. I'm not saying right, I'm not saying good, I'm saying the courts have traditionally held that such an officer is reasonable in acting that way. And we call this a justifiable shooting, and we don't do so for moral reasons, but that is the legal designation but there were aspects to the killing of Rayshard Brooks that would complicate that. Namely, that Rolf knew the taser didn't hit him, this is something that Howard argued, and also that Rolf knew the taser was all used up. And the DA, Paul Howard, did argue that, but he also argued so much more, so much of which seemed incomplete or contrary to facts. For instance, Here was his description of how Brooks comported himself with the police during the encounter.
3: Brooks, on the night of this incident, was calm. He was cordial. His demeanor during this incident was almost jovial.
0: Well, yes, up until the moment that he very much wasn't. At no point did Paul Howard say, before fighting off the handcuffing and stealing the officer's tasers, Howard didn't say that, The once jovial man then resisted arrest? No, the district attorney painted a picture of a cordial, calm man who was then killed. No interceding moments of lack of calm or any upheaval.
3: For 41 minutes and 17 seconds, he followed every instruction. Until he didn't. And the moment he
0: didn't was, I think quite confusingly, described by Paul Howard
3: this way. Mr. Brooks was never informed that he was under arrest for driving under the influence. And uh, this is a requirement of the Atlanta Police Department when one is charged with the DUI. Let me now play
0: you that moment. It is caught on tape, the audio is very good. This is the officer, Garrett Rolfe, attempting to handcuff Rayshard Brooks. All right, I think you've had too
2: much to drink to be driving. Put your hands behind your back for me. Put your hands behind your back.
0: The police officer then proceeded to handcuff the drunk driver, who had blown over a 1.0 on the breathalyzer, the legal limit being a 0.08. And that very second, Brooks spun out of the officer's grasp. The two went down to the ground. They were joined by a third officer, who was tased, and his attorney says, concussed. Here is Howard's description
3: of that. Grabbed from the rear uh, by uh, Officer Roth, who made an attempt to physically restrain him And this is what I said as I
0: was watching Howard's press conference after he said that. What? I said, am I insane? Clearly, Ralph said, I think you've had too much to drink to be driving as he begins to put on the handcuffs, i.e. that is the charge, drunk driving. Now, perhaps half a second later, Ralph would have uttered the legal phrase, I charge you with a violation of Georgia penal code, driving under the influence. Although, according to legal experts who I've seen quoted, it's perfectly in keeping with properly informing a suspect he's under arrest to tell him, I think you've been drinking too much to drive. The phrase is effectuating an arrest, and quite often the officer will cuff the suspect and then say, here is why I cuff you. That is fine. That's standard operating procedure. In this case, the officer didn't even have a chance to say that if he was going to because the handcuffed suspect attacked him. That violation, what Howard says was a violation of informing the suspect of what he was being arrested for, was no mere critique. It is literally a legal charge that has a prison sentence attached.
3: Uh, Officer Roth is charged with seven violations of office. Each one of those carries a one to five sentence. Uh, These are violations of his oath of office for the city of Atlanta arresting Mr. Brooks for the DUI without immediately informing him.
0: Now, it may seem that I am harping too much on this detail of the interaction, whereas the very important part is the shooting, but the reason I do that is the shooting is ambiguous, and I thought that is what Howard would spend the most time on. He didn't! He actually spent most of his time setting a scene that runs contrary to what we can all very plainly see and hear on the video. The shooting can be interpreted many different ways, but the moment of arrest I do not think can be. And yet Howard did. He just told us the opposite of what we see on the tape. At this point, I would like to pause and not discuss a legal argument, but a moral argument, somewhat of a practical argument, that's been advanced all around this story. I will quote Trevor Noah making it because he argues the perspective pretty well, but also so many people have referred me to his definition of defund the police. They say that's the one to pay attention to. So he has become, I don't know, I don't want to say a spokesman, but someone who at least effectively channels the very real, very raw emotions of the moment. Here's Trevor Noah. You have a man who is sleeping in his car. You know what's messy about this whole thing is we forget you are dealing with a drunk person. You're dealing with somebody. The very fact that you're not allowed to sign a contract when you're drunk, the very fact that you're not, you're not allowed to do anything when you're drunk, tells us something about drunk. We know what a drunk person is in society. They're not going to do the logical thing. So as a policeman, if a drunk person does an illogical thing, what, like, I feel like you should acknowledge the fact that they're drunk. It doesn't mean they deserve to die. They're drunk. We know what drunk people do. I've been drunk, you've been drunk, everyone has been drunk. You don't deserve to die for being drunk. And if police cannot respond or cannot handle a drunk person, well then then they shouldn't be responding. You're sober, he's drunk. How are two sober men wrestling with a drunk person on the ground? How does it get that far? It gets out of hand because the not logical brain of the drunk person decided to do something unwise, that again, I feel like I got to say this because someone's going to hear it differently, but it doesn't deserve a death sentence. But that is the answer to Trevor Noah's question. Trevor Noah's Creed de corps, which included the idea that the police should have just let Brooks walk home or give him a ride home, is an actual contradiction when you think about it of Howard's picture of Brooks being nothing but calm and cordial. Howard takes the beginning part of Brooks' actions and asks, how could things have even gotten so out of control with such a calm person. How could that calm person die? Noah takes another look at the same set of actions and asks, how could the police let such an obviously impaired person to influence the situation to the degree he did? One question that has been asked is essentially, why are you arresting drunk drivers? Well, a million and a half drunk driving arrests are made every year. 1.49999 million of them don't end in a shooting. Are we not to arrest drunk drivers? Are we not to do so with handcuffs? Because Rayshard Brooke tragically broke free of his cuffs, assaulted an officer, and then when trying to flee was shot. I've heard it argued that cops actually don't need to be involved in traffic stops to the degree that they are. I think that's a fine argument to ponder and think about. But driving under the influence is just about the most serious traffic infraction that doesn't involve an actual homicide, or might it might still yet. Of course we need to stop drunk driving. Of course we need to, oh, what's the word? Oh yeah, police it. And we do need to arrest violators. What's the other way? A bench warrant, a ticket, like a busted taillight light that maybe you show up for, maybe you let pile up in your glove compartment as you keep on drunk driving? It is beyond a shame that this instance of drunk driving ended as it did, but it's being folded into this broader argument that arrest duties should be taken away from the police or that detention of drunk drivers should be executed with officers who have no arrest power. That's ludicrous. And this, and here comes the horrible part because we live in America. To have arresting power, to give that to the police, means that the officer will be armed because so often a subject is armed. And once guns are present, things can and do go poorly. In this case, because of Garrett Ralph's actions, his decision to shoot the gun, but also, yes, very much because of Raychard Brooks' actions. We don't want to say it, not this week, maybe not ever. I don't want you to interpret it as quote-unquote blame, but Raychard Brooks' actions certainly played a role. Today we learned he was once incarcerated and was on probation and feared going back to prison, so that makes us understand his motivations. I don't, I never think that he deserved to die. And I don't think that Ralph should have shot him. I never will. People will say, you can't put yourself in that situation. No, but if I did and I shot him, I'd say that was wrong of me to do. Even if someone missed me with a taser, I should not kill that person. We need societally to get to the type of policing where the clear message through the law, through tradition, through training, through judicial decisions, is that that should not go on. I thought Paul Howard would have a pretty big lift in convincing me that we're at that place already, that justice would entail taking an officer who was trained a certain way, who was told what was and wasn't lawful, who was told he had protections of the law, of the Graham ruling and others, and to acknowledge all that, but then Howard would make the leap And this, I knew would be quite hard to convince us that we're in that place already. In other words, what Paul Howard would have to do in his press conference is to say, yes, I know, we have all these traditions, we have all these rulings that seem to favor the officer, but if you look at the facts, as a fair-minded person in this case, this officer does deserve to go to jail, because that is not only justice in the abstract sense, and this is what I thought Paul Howard's job would be, but that is justice if we actually follow the rule of law as it is written. I'm not saying Paul Howard wasn't successful in his effort to convince us of that. I'm saying he largely did not even try to make that case. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. Did she actually know, unlike Donald Trump, that Finland was not part of Russia? Yeah, of course she knew Finland wasn't part of Russia, because otherwise, Finlandia vodka would we'll just be Smirnoff. Duh. Daniel Schrader, just producer, says, no, not duh, da. Joel Patterson filled in today, helped edit the show. He's a former editor of Surfer Magazine, and that's why he's bracing for the second wave. The gist, we will be off tomorrow on Juneteenth. It is tomorrow, June 19th, which I knew about before Donald Trump even mentioned it. oom da Peru do Peru, and thanks for listening.